the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples. Those are the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, commonly known as Victoria, BC, Canada. My guest today is Maris Bergroon. Maris is a ritual animist, a spirit worker, a sound medium, and a singer-musician. I've taken two of her programs, one on Norse animism and ritual, and one on Sather mediumship, and we'll talk about them in detail today. Maris teaches skill development in intuition perception, boundaries and discernment, and offers a very good foundation in animist ritual, and also, I guess what we'd call relational practices with the other than human worlds. She focuses on developing healthy relationships with spirits and ancestors, and also on accessing self-sovereignty and voice. As you'll hear in this interview, her practice is characterized by this very clear intention to partner with only the most compassionate aspects of spirit. I find her approach very grounded and practical, and she's clear that this approach is not a way to bypass the challenges of humanity, but are rather uh, ways to be deeply resourced while facing these challenges. So I've wanted to have Maris on the show for, well, since well before pandemic, um, when I was taking her program. So I, I was super excited that she remembered me and agreed to come on the show. Just quickly before we get started, though, I want to share that if you like the content of this episode, I think you'll like my Yuletide Folk Fest program. It's a 12-day mini course that runs from December 21st, so winter solstice, through January 1st, where each day you receive a 10 to 20-minute podcast and a 3 to 4-minute meditation. It's all about the folklore and history of Yuletide traditions. It runs for 12 days because in this framework, the 12 days of Yuletide are a replay of the year in miniature. So it's an extended practice of self-reflection to help us end the year well with good closure and feeling in flow with the rhythm of the turn of the year. So stay tuned to the end of the podcast for details about how to join. And now I hope you enjoy my conversation with Maris. So Maris, what identities do you lead with? Yes, uh... I like to kind of think more perhaps in terms of like guiding principles or what kind of threads of my life have been present and drive me to do what I do. And along with that comes certain identifiers, definitely, uh, which I'll, I'll get to as well. Um, I have for a long time been in, driven by the desire to know how things work. Uh, as a child, that's really uh, drove what I did in school and that drove my choice of what I did in college and beyond. I was interested in the natural world, animals in particular and plants and, but just like, what is this world in which we live in and how does it work? And what do I do with that information and how can that inform me in, in my life? Um, I've also been for a long time driven by my own healing path. And that was a big part, especially of my earlier years and so a lot of that had to do with personal transformation 
and the transformation of my my experience in the world and my consciousness and so i'm very much into that the transformation of consciousness um I, and i'm very much driven i consider myself the, the term of the day is animist so a lot of what i do has to do with animist principles i like to call it animist sensibilities which has to do with kind of being in the world from a place of relationality and communication with the broader world and and with an eye for reciprocity as well on that. So what's the exchange that's happening constantly? What am I doing? What the impact, what is the impact of my actions? And, and how can I be present in the world from a place of greater wisdom, understanding, reciprocity and right relationship? Mm. Because of my healing path and then those kind of animus sensibility aspects of things, uh, I spent, I, I, what was trained originally and continued to have a big part of my practice being uh, spirit mediated and having to do with the contact with the unseen world and relationships with spirits. And as a part of that, I practice a version of mediumship, uh, which we may talk about later. Uh, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and yeah, and I'm a ritualist, so I'm a ritual animist. And ritual for me has to do with, not just with say doing a formal ritual or an intentional ritual, but again, it's a bit about how I live. Mm -hmm. I like to think of organic as being rich, as ritual as being organic mm -hmm. and being just part of day-to-day -day life. And mm -hmm. so to that end, I, I teach that form of ritual. I also teach how to have more formal ritual practices. I teach about how to communicate with spirits and be in relationship with spirits and other aspects of the unseen world, some of which have seen components like plant people and mm -hmm. animal people, for example. And a major focus of my, you know, my identity within that and my practice is that uh, is boundaries as well, <laughs> how to have healthy boundaries with all of this and how to have discernment within all of this and how to have healthy relationships and have it be a source of resourcing and support and, and goodness in life. Mm, I really resonate with so much. This is why I'm so excited that you came on the show. I've, I've, I've been tracking your work for a long time and uh, really enjoyed the courses I took with you. So I'm super excited to go deeper into this. So could you describe in a little bit more detail, you, you talked about your mediumship practice, how did that work evolve for you? And are there specific lineages that you're drawing upon? Yes, so I came to that work. Well, it depends on how you're defining mediumship, actually. <laughs> how do you define uh, it? Yes, so the, the common understanding of mediumship is that it's about speaking with deceased people. And that's certainly an application of it that's well known and widely known. I take a more broader view of it and I say it's actually a, a part of, of consciousness and consciousness to consciousness communication that can involve any type of consciousness, not just deceased people. And also it is an extension of daily life again. So again, you can 
of course, specialize in it and develop that, <laughs> that aspect of yourself strongly and maybe become professional or use it professionally in some way. Uh, but I do see it as a part of everyone's uh, reality and potential and a part of day-to-day -day life and an extension of intuition, what we would call intuition. Mm -hmm. um, I learned uh, the particular version that has been my foundation from a woman named Betsy Bergstrom who practices in Seattle. Uh, my understanding is that she was influenced strongly by uh, spiritualism, the spiritualist movement, and which was a, a group who uh, used mediumship rather heavily and have for oh, I think over hundred years, years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> a while. And uh, but what Betsy did was she took some of the she's uh, really great at, at creating kind of adapting ritual practices and technology for other purposes or for broader purposes. And in this case, uh, what she developed was a way of, of working within a group often, although you can work as a solo person as well, uh, doing a group setting that doesn't involve one medium being the focus, but actually almost everyone in the group being mediumistic and kind of sharing the, the group field and being able to give voice to their little piece of whatever is coming through, as well as being able to use this to speak, to again, uh, communicate with and in a really deep way, actually, with, with spirits of different types. So for example, you could do this with an, an angelic being or um, the cedar spirit and that kind of thing. And one of the things about it that I loved about it that really stood out to me was the fact that we're not just communicating. So it's not just about having conversations with these beings, but it's actually more about getting to know their consciousness. It's actually about sharing their consciousness for a time. And what one of the things I love about that is that one, it gets me out of kind of a human centric way of viewing consciousness. Um, but it, it for me has been a big lesson in and being human centric in my consciousness. And it's been a real gift to be able to actually, you know, at least partially to some extent, experience how other conscious beings are and how they perceive. Um, and getting a, a, being able to get a direct sense of their, their wisdom in that way. That's amazing. Go ahead, did you wanna say more about that? Uh, well, I've also, well, just other lineages that I've, or teachers that I've, because we don't, I don't, I actually can't trace lineages that far right. <laughs> these days, you know, it's kind of the teachers that I work with, but yeah. uh, I also have learned a lot from Tom Kenyon, who does sound mediumship. And my initial training way back in the day was in something akin to core shamanism. Mm. So that kind of practice as well. Mm. Interesting. So, but you didn't grow up in a spiritual household, quite the opposite, which you, you've written about. You have a great essay about that on your website. But did you have early childhood experiences then, direct experiences that piqued your curiosity? Like how did you come to be so attuned to the more than? I can look back and say, <laughs> these experiences that I didn't have a context for, like now I have a context for them. For example, I'm pretty sure I was harassed by spirits every night in my bedroom. Oh, I know <laughs> I a lot of listeners this. are going to relate to this. Oh my gosh, how many of my clients come to me with this? Oh, so interesting to look back and realize that. Yes, absolutely. And now I'm just like, oh, no, I know what was happening. I slept under the covers until I left for college, honestly. That was how I slept. Um, 
And I was very much in tune with animals and with the natural world. I had friends who were trees and <laughs> stuffed animals. And, and again, looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, I was actually knew that they were conscious and present and I had relationships at that time, but I had no context for it, absolutely none. These were the days prior to the internet. Mm-hmm. So you got information from your family, <laughs> from maybe the library, depending on what books are available in your peer group. And that was it uh, for the most part. And so I didn't have a context for it. Uh, looking back, I was also a quote, a sensitive child. Yeah. <laughs> and now it makes sense. But what really drove me, the way I found this work was, again, the pursuit of my own healing. I was badly depressed for about 20 years, I think almost. And I was driven to find a solution for that and a a way out. And so that eventually got me into, I went from graduate school in neurobiology to acupuncture school. And then when I was in acupuncture school, I met the woman who became my teacher, uh, who kind of initiated me into spirit work. And I was seeing her initially for healing and I, again, didn't think of myself as someone who would do this kind of thing because mm. <laughs> um, I hadn't had any like big major blow, like revisions or, you know, <laughs> anything like that that I remember as a child. Uh, but then uh, this teacher put on a sole purpose workshop. And I was like, that sounds like a good thing to take. <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> Sign me up. How Sign much? Me up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a Friday through Sunday and her kind of methods were a little bit throw you in the deep end. So she was like, a lot of people who are totally new to any of this was so like, all right, now you're going to do readings for each other. Now you're going to do a drum journey. Now here's this purification ceremony tonight that you're going to go to go do. And we were like, whoa, what <laughs> is happening? <laughs> Some people were like really stressed out about it. I'm sure I was to some extent too. Like, I don't know how to do this. Like, what do you mean? And, um, but it worked. That was the thing. It worked and we could do it. And even though it was really challenging, it was the best experience I'd had in my life at that point. I was like, yeah, this is for me. Um, (laughs) Yeah, and that got me into trading. Wow, that's amazing. So, okay, so you're a very different person now than you were, say, when you went to college. Is it difficult then now to relate to your family context? Like, they must be like, wow, we did not see this coming. They did not see this coming. Uh, I have I give them props for the amount of tolerance that is present. <laughs> they they support me, uh, and they don't understand what I do. And there's a little bit of a don't ask, don't tell, a little bit aspect of things where I'm, I'm not laying it on them. Right. Um, they they know where to find me. They know kind of the the general right. terrain, and so. Um, so I, I feel like for me, it's, it's been about, you know, respecting their boundaries with it. Um, and as long as and they respect mine, it mm-hmm. seems as far as I know. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it was a little hard feeling like uh, that I'm totally, you know, I guess some amount of black sheep kind of syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, they've always been supportive. They've never, you know, um, you know, so it wasn't, there wasn't rejection that I felt from my family, but I didn't feel like I fit um, mm. until I did ancestral work, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which has been a major part of my life for about five, the past five years. Uh, and 
then it made sense to me. So the way I think about it is I didn't make sense in the context of my, my immediate family, as far as I could tell at least, but it did make sense in the context of my ancestry. Mm. And so that's also helped take a little bit of a charge out of any um, disconnect right. that's been created. Yeah. I imagine it also helps put the 20 year depression in context. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since then you, you you've written that uh, this is a quote from one of your um, blogs. Psychic perception is not a gift that some are born with. It is a characteristic of consciousness. So, can you say more about that for folks who might also be unsure of their own psychic ability? Maybe right now there's people listening, being like, "Oh, yeah, but that's that's okay for her. Her family supports her, or that's okay for her. She found that teacher, but." maybe that doesn't apply to me. Well, I also would have said it didn't apply to me. That's the thing. Before I met this teacher, I would have definitely said that doesn't apply to me. Mm -hmm. um, I would not have used any of these labels for myself um, at all. Um, so here's kind of how I look at it. I think, you know, culturally speaking, at least in the West, uh, uh, <laughs> the United States maybe in particular, even that's my major frame of reference. Uh, we have been a part of the what's happened ancestrally for us for a lot of people at least is a distancing from this as normal so there was a time probably in most of our if not all of our ancestries where it was completely it was considered completely normal to be able to communicate with the unseen world um, what we call intuition or uh, extensions of that mm -hmm. and uh, then things happened over time, cultural shifts, etc., cetera, uh, happened to make that, uh, well, make it not okay for that to be happening in a lot of lineages, at least. And part of that now is that the way, you know, things come up then is, well, part of what happened, I think, as a result of that is that the people who are really in tune with it early on, and then maybe in a bigger way, um, stand out. <laughs> The virtuosos kind of the ones who are born to do it for a living from an early age too right um stand out to us and then we take that as being some people have a special gift um but we still have our own largely ancestral dissociation from it and it, then it's easy to say but i don't um but i would i would venture of course this is not going to apply to everybody but i remember a, a client i had who was came for a reading and I was just really resistant to the reading the whole time. <laughs> and I was kind of like, gosh, I wonder why she's here. <laughs> this yeah. is really interesting. And then finally, and I was kind of at my wits end too, a little bit, because it's like, I don't know what to do with this, you know, in this situation. And I was a young practitioner, of course, too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm failing. Right. Um, <laughs> and psychic fail too, because it's, it's hard for me to actually to read when people are, like, I actually can't really read when people are resistant. There's a boundary there that, that right. I definitely respect and I personally don't, can't cross. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't want to even, <laughs> right. but it's, it's, um, but then I finally asked her, her, I was like, well, how about you? Have you had any experiences like this? And she totally had, she, she spoke for several minutes about all these experiences she had. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, um, she's totally had all these, you know, everything she's in doubt about, she's actually experienced herself. And so I just think we have some stuff to work through mm -hmm. as culturally and generally speaking, and it can take some time and effort 
and getting through insecurity because I think a lot of people were um, I definitely was and in the first year training that I did when <laughs> a lot of people in the same boat in that regard it was just like pressures on a bit and yeah. and insecurity was part of the, the the developmental process so I think it's important to not expect it to just be uh, you know, to be virtuosic with it right away. Mm -hmm. um, I also think, think there's some misconceptions about it, especially because um, again, we kind of get informed through media mm -hmm. and like <laughs> TV yeah. shows and that kind of treatment. It's not information on demand. It's not that we can just be like, yeah, I want to know this and I'm going to know this. That's mm -hmm. not actually in my experience what it is at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our expectations about it can also kind of get help us get jammed up. There's a lot of things that can help mm -hmm. us get jammed up with regards to this kind of, uh, in this domain. And, and those are, those are some. Mm -hmm. Well, and you've also talked about having a variety of teachers and sometimes, you know, it's like any kind of, uh, learning environment rapport is really important. Relationship is really important. And there might be one teacher that you know, one person is just like, yep, that's really easy to me for me to learn in their context. And somebody else who's just spends the entire time irritated, dysregulated, critiquing in resistance, whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, that just might not be a good fit. Like maybe you have to move, you got to date a few teachers as well. Um, that's, that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because I really, really dug your teaching style with um, particularly uh, a course called language myth and magic. And in that course, your academic orientation was very evident. And that's so my jam that I was like, I love her. <laughs> and, so, and, just, I, and like, I, it's, it's interesting because it's one of the few areas of my life where I will like kind of sit and be quiet and receive and like kind of just be the quiet student is when I'm like really loving the teacher. And, um, yeah, your use of uh, primary sources is is actually pretty extraordinary um, as far as like modern self-directed spirituality goes. There's a lot of kind of secondhand and thirdhand and fourthhand information that suddenly becomes entombed and, and enshrined. Uh, whereas actually, even though we have the internet and all this access to primary sources, it, it actually is pretty difficult, I find, in, in sort of this... Uh, wave we're catching historically in self-directed spirituality, whatever you want to call it, paganism, witchcraft, wh wherever you're taking that. Um, so thank you for that. That was really fantastic. Um, so kind of leaping off of that, I, I would like you to share with folks a, just a bit about like, what is the poetic Edda, specifically the volume spot, and how did you learn so much about the Norse sagas? How did you come to be studying these primary sources and interpreting them? even comparing them, you were like, oh, this version of this translation is like this. And that translation's like that. I was like, how does she know this? How do you know this? <laughs> yeah. So this is, was definitely influenced by my time in the, in science. Um, absolutely. Because what we do is we, we read primary sources and uh, secondary sources can be really helpful to give overviews of material, but it's to do, to write a research paper, you have to look at the primary sources. So one of the, the practices I studied with Betsy Bergstrom is called Sather. Sather is, among other things, a transmediumship practice that is attested to in the medieval Norse uh, literature. And so we're talking about things that were written down starting in the 1200s. 
and the bulk of the material coming from the 1200s to the 1400s. This includes the sagas, this includes some poetry that's put in compilations today, one of which is called the Poetic Edda. Um, so I was in training, I, I did a, a training in Sather with Betsy Bergstrom. This is a practice that taps into the Norse powers. So you start working with people like Odin and Freya and Thor. And I was not interested in any of these people <laughs> prior to this because of their treatment in modern media. I wasn't interested, frankly. Uh, but then I did say there and I was like, oh, this is rather different than what I expected. And I fell in love with Sather, and it's a big part of my practice these days. It's a, I consider it an ancestral tradition and uh, a big part of my work. So yes, so I met these, um, these spirit people <laughs> through Sather, and I wanted to learn more about them. And I was hearing about them as well. And I was hearing bits of information and looking online and that kind of thing, and different people saying different things. And, <laughs> and then my, um, my, science training, my analytical self kicks in and says, wait a second, one person says this, another person says this, like, where's this coming from? Mm -hmm. And what is the, what are the sources of this information actually say? And so I started looking and found that uh, not unexpectedly, a lot of the ways things are presented today is in my view, at least not an accurate representation of how they were being presented, at least in this time frame that we have some information from. And while I feel like modern relationships and interpretations uh, have a place, I like to know the difference and that often isn't present. So I like to know what actually is sourced from this medieval uh, set of inform uh, the medieval information and what is not. And that distinction I find is largely not present. And so I, I just had to uh, be in my bonnet or what I was saying would be to, <laughs> to learn the distinctions. And I also became then really curious about what these practices were, how they were, how they were represented in this literature. And it's, you know, what you find is that it's a lot more nuanced than a lot of people like. I think we tend to like things to be very concrete and literal. That's not what you get. Uh, there's variety uh, in the sources. There isn't like, this is just how it is. And <laughs> here's the formula and here's the, the how-to manual. It doesn't come that way. Um, but it also helped for me to, uh, to access uh, the work of Maria Kvilhaug. Um, she has a book called The Seed of Yggdrasil. And she is brilliant at taking the literature. She knows the literature far more in depth than I do. And she interpret, interprets, interprets it in a way that really made it come to life for me. So my inhibitions about it, my like, oh, you know, it's like a patriarchy in the sky kind of thing and all of that. And why would I want to know and get into this and all? Uh, she presents it in a way that brings out the wisdom tradition aspect of it. And it's like, it was like soul food, mm. that book. And she does videos as well for those who prefer that format. And, and that really opened it up. That, that is what enabled me to really get into it and be interested in it and stay interested in it. Mm. Okay. What, what is the value spa? Who are the norms? Let's give people a yeah. little more of the fun 
<laughs> parts of, of Sather. And maybe could you even describe like wh- what would Sather look like in practice? I'm also curious if you could put in there how much of your practice of Sather is fairly directly taken from the literature and how much have you received from the guides you work with? Yeah. The deities. Okay. And feel free to redirect me because this can. <laughs> I'm just going to let you riff. This is like jazz. I'm just going to let All you right. riff. Yeah. So from the medieval Norse literature, what we have, what remains to this day, and there's a lot that was lost. So it's a, it's a selection of things that existed. What we have from that is a description of a practice that uh, varies uh, often in the sagas too. So those are these are narrative. This is prose narrative. So the descriptions of Sather uh, in the sagas, what people notice is that there are common elements. So the descriptions are not always the same, and what's happening is not always the same. But sometimes there are similar elements to what's being described. And it is, uh, for example, things that are described include weather working. Mm-hmm. Uh, includes the practitioners going into a, a trance state because it what's described as like their bodies lay as if asleep or dead while their consciousness is somewhere else doing doing something else often combat magic because these are sagas and so they're very combat driven um, and there's also in a few instances uh, sailor practitioners doing oracular sittings and being asked to to uh, to prophesize for a community or do an oracular sitting of some kind. And so what people noticed when they went to the sources and were reading about Sather is that, well, some things are repeated. And that has become a template for modern practice. So we don't know exactly what they were doing. These are prose narratives. Um, the presence of a Sather practitioner is there for a, a narrative purpose. Yeah, again, it's not a how-to for, for <laughs> 10 generations, you know, in the future yeah. who have become interested in this. Um, and so, so people who started to develop, modern people who started to develop this practice again, um, and my understanding is that this was starting in particular in Denmark, um, a, a group led by Annette Host uh, for a few uh, decades now. And what they did was they had like core shamanism training and that kind of thing. And they, but they started to look into what would Sather be in particular. And so what's come from that, it has been the following template that's utilized. So, well, first of all, it's, it's connection with the Norse powers. And that I think is in any form of ritual, it's the connection to powers, and I say powers because we can mean, that can mean astrological powers um, and configuration, seasonal powers, as well as spirits, deities, that kind of figure, uh, the tree, the world tree. And first of all, we, we develop relationships with those beings, and that is what gives ritual power. Um, one of the main things that gives ritual power. And then the template is the use of also a staff um, as a, a medicine ally, uh, the use of song to sing yourself into trance or to sing yourself on a journey or for people to sing you on a journey as the case may be. And I'll describe that in, in just a minute uh, more. Uh, so they all start with S, which is really convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Staffs, <laughs> song, um, seat. So 
uh, an elevated platform or seat by which the practitioner would practice. Uh, this could be outdoors, and if it's outdoors, it's often described as like a, some kind of platform. I don't know how they raise platforms, but they handy, <laughs> I guess, in that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, you could go out and raise the platform. Good with a little hand axe there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And then uh, in a hall, it would be the high seat. So it'd be the place where like the head of the hall, the chieftain perhaps would, would sit. Um, and so sometimes um, the, the ritual sometimes is called the high seat for that reason. But anyway, an elevated, pla elevated place, which is actually not uncommon for oracular practice for your oracles to either be higher than usual or lower than usual so subterranean or on a mountain or elevated in some way mm -hmm. um, and then there's also sitting out so a practice of going out into nature doing a nature sitting um, communing with nature in some way so that's the template that is utilized today to to perhaps uh, distinguish seether a bit as a practice um, it does feel different from the other practices i do i do um, and, and then as part of that modern day practice, we do a ritual high seat. And what that can look like is any number of practitioners, but usually one to three, perhaps, how many, depending on how many you have for the, <laughs> um, doing a sitting and they can sit simultaneously and, um, and connect with the powers and bring through wisdom and healing for people. Uh, so that's roughly what it, what it would be. Um, yeah, it, I had the experience of just like a, a, a small ritual of that um, in a, a different um, program that you were teaching. And I found it very beautiful and very touching, um, particularly the the music so can you talk a little bit more about the role of music and singing in Sather and and where your songs have come from again that's not something that easily gets translated a thousand years later right so it does not what, where does the music <laughs> where, what about the words where are they coming from yes well, that's one of the things that we run into is we so and there could be a yearning for the songs that were mm -hmm. um and what I've been told by spirits in conversation around these things is they're like, um, well, the songs are different, but the notes are the same. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. you're still singing and the pitches, you know, they, you know, they like, it's like, okay, you know, um, and ritual has to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we can still access uh, ritual songs. And again, they may not be exactly the same as they were, but they can come from the same place in the sense of they can, we can have the intention to create a song for a purpose and um, work it into a ritual tradition and have it become a part of that. And in Sather, there are indications that singing was a part of Sather, at least, again, not in every description. So we don't know if it was a, always considered a part of it. There's also a related practice called Galver, uh, which means actually a sung spell or something of that nature. So very much is involves sound mm -hmm. of some kind. We know almost nothing about Galther. <laughs> um, but again, if we look at how sound is used ritually, we can we can use it as such within a Sather context. So what's happened with Sather is that so, uh, there is a song by I learned called the Journey Song, and that was 
created by someone whose name I can't think of in this moment, um, but by someone who's a practitioner um, and then was passed to Betsy Bergstrom who taught it to us. So there's a song we use there. And then uh, sound, another aspect of ritual sound. So there's like songs that you can use for a ritual purpose and it can become tied to that ritual purpose. And then there's sound channeling. Uh, which may be more of what Galther was and is, can be a part of any kind of practice of this kind. They use a sound, which is that you connect to um, the deep self, to the spirits that you're connecting with, and, and you make, you sing from there, you make sound from there. And you sing yourself on a journey and that song can then be variable and it may be not be the same every time. And in fact, it won't be in the same every time in that context. Um, but because I have a background in music as well, um, I was trained in classical violin when I was young. I know a little piano, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I've loved music uh, since I was a child and been interested in creating it. Um, I've taken the additional step of creating music from the, the medieval poetry, <laughs> the medieval Norse poetry as well. And you're mentioning the Voluspa before and the Voluspa uh, that name means the prophecy of the Volva. Um, a Volva is a staff carrying Cirrus, who is a Seder practitioner as well. Um, there's overlap in those terms. And often the person to be doing these oracular sittings. And there's a whole poem that is the, it's a cosmological poem that's called the prophecy of the Volva. And in that it's a Volva speaking, a prophecy to the God Odin. And in that poem, she recounts the cre you know what was present before this world was created the creation of this world um, some major mythological components uh, things that happened and then ragnarok the destruction of the world followed by the rebirth again of the world so this poem is a cosmological cycle and that i've set to music <laughs> i decided i was gonna make songs out of so i take every few stanzas and uh, look for you know ones that fit together coherently and have made sounds out of songs out of them. That's amazing. That's amazing. Where where did the Norns fit into this cosmology? Yes, the Norns. So there are three primary Norns, or three Norns that are actually uh, mentioned in the Voluspa and the Erda Verdande in Schooled. Uh, Erda means origin. Erdande means becoming, and schooled means shall, or that which shall be, in a sense. And they're often related to the fates, but they seem slightly different. They are involved in uh, the what's called Erlog, uh, which can be thought of as fate. Um, and so they're involved in that aspect of the cosmos. They're considered elder beings. They're not quite human. <laughs> um, and they're very magical to work with. And they, I think, actually form the foundation for a lot of the Seder work. Seder, uh, there's no direct references to this. So this is a modern interpretation. But Seder is considered to be, to have these elements of, of working with the, the becoming aspect of fate. So that which you can do in this moment that may uh, shape the trajectory of the future. And so in some ways it's rooted in the norms. Um, also in the literature, it is said that everyone has a personal norm. 
<laughs> so exciting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, um, and again, this can be considered maybe an aspect of their fate. Um, of someone uh, a, a being who is involved in that aspect of who we are to some degree uh, but yeah they're they're wonderful to work with and sometimes when we do a high seat sitting especially if we have three practitioners we will sit as the norms mm. um, intentionally taking on one of their um characteristics or you're just calling them in and then see how it kind of shakes out who wants to sing or speak through who yeah, it's what tends to happen. It doesn't seem to be as neat as that for one person being one norm, <laughs> but more like it's a collective conscious in a way. And the sitters will have different angles to that. Uh, who's who? I think would be a little bit hard to say. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, what we're doing is we're connecting with them and and, and say there. Uh, so in my mediumship work, there's a range of uh, of degrees of kind of communion with the spirits. Most of my mediumship is not actually um, a spirit being involved in my body to any extent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so just to note that, uh, see there is a little bit more, I'm conscious, um, it's consensual, and I work only with the most wise and compassionate aspects of spirits. So it's healthy and safe to do this this mm -hmm. way. Um, but I will give more of my body and my voice potentially to the being then in this particular context. This is a form of uh, transmediumship that goes a little deeper and a little further than my other mediumship practices do. Mm. Um, and then we will be giving voice to yeah, what's coming through. Can, can you spell the, the sound uh, um, practice that you go? What was it? Gulver? Yeah, Galver. So it's like Sather. There's a TH sound that's in an in inconvenient place for English speakers, <laughs> but it's G A L. You'll find it if you look at uh, look up G A L D R. Right. So that's English uh, English the English version okay. of it. Yeah. <laughs> but that D is actually a curly D, and it's a TH sound. Okay. So it's actually a different letter. So interesting to have a, a word like that. So I'm relating it to personal experiences I've had with sound and song coming through. So uh, I spent a couple of years learning um, Scottish Gaelic songs and particularly some keening and lament songs. And um, I don't know, just came through, just hit me like a real deep arrow at some point that I was like, oh my gosh, this music, I heard it once and was like, I have to learn what they're saying. I have to learn that, you know? And so I did my, my, um, lineage is, uh, Scottish Highlanders. And so I, I've had that experience where I, I heard somebody singing a little passage from the Carmina Gadelica. I heard her on YouTube. I thought I had taken that song and like started singing it. And then I brought it to my Gaelic singing teacher and was like, Oh, you know, this song. And I started singing it. She was like, I'm familiar with those words, but that is not the tune. <laughs> she said it nicely, but she's like, that's, that's not the tune. And I was like, no, no, for sure. It is. I like learned it from this. And she was like, no, no, you're singing it beautifully. That's just not the song, but go ahead and do that. And I, I was, I went back and watched the video again and was like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, totally. I'm singing a totally different song, but with the same words as this other woman. So then I went back for another singing lesson with my teacher and was like, Sheena, uh, is this a different 
tune. And she was like, no, no, it's so gorgeous and beautiful. You should keep singing that the old ones are singing through you. Like that's your way to sing that song. It is nothing like the woman on YouTube, but like that is the old ones are singing through you. That is your song. You should sing that song. And I was like, okay. And it, you know, so that's how I sing that song. Whereas in a different context, I was doing a sit out. I was like on quest in this particular space, uh, this, this bioregion. And as I was walking through the forest, I kind of, I got, I hit a like invisible border where I had this very strong impulse, this instruction really from the land that was like, basically halt who goes there. Like you need to introduce yourself. And I sort of stopped and what came out was this musical sound. <laughs> like, and it was just a sound. It wasn't words. It was just this like series of notes. And, and in my mind and in my body and my soul, it felt like this is my name. This is me saying, hi, I'm Carmen. This is who I am. This is. And so that name, I call it my name song. And it's what I do now, whenever I'm like traveling in a new place and I'm sensing like, okay, I'm like with these other beings and I want to announce who I am, I will sing to the mountain or sing to the forest, but it's not words. <laughs> it's just like, literally just like, Hey, <laughs> but with notes. And so I'm sort of seeing that as, as like, if you're in relationship and in reciprocity, these are practices that I believe will just naturally happen. They like happen to you or you allow something to happen. And then it's so wonderful to come across literature that says, oh yeah, that's the thing. We have a name for it. We had a whole tradition. It's like, yeah, we know young one. We know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's anyway, I just want to share that because that's like such a very cool um, uh, affirmation and maybe other people have had something similar, you know? Yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, I think an important element of that is allowing yourself to do it. Cause again, I think we can get, get caught up in like, what were the songs? What's the right thing to sing? What's the right way to sing? What's the right way to do this? When it really is about being in the moment and, you know, being in a place of heart and authenticity and good intention and being connected and tuned in and see what kind of comes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It makes sense to me that like, none of us want to, um, appropriate or overstep or like be disrespectful but there's kind of also a, a balance where like you said there's there's like a good intentions actually do matter um and and matter quite a bit if you're if you're listening and approaching in a good way you also mentioned um about how you only work with the the compassionate aspects of different deities, those like wise and compassionate aspects. And in your teaching, I've heard you even include references to Rupert Sheldrake's research on morphogenetic fields. And, and so I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that with listeners, because it's, you know, it's kind of like a background item for me too, where it's like, I've read a lot of his work and I will sometimes mention morphogenetic fields. And, but it's kind of one of those things where I'm, I'm like, oh God, you need like, it just takes a lot to explain it maybe to people, but I feel like you probably have more experience and can do a, a good job of it. So, so why is it so important to, to clearly and specifically work with just the compassionate aspects of deities and what does that have to do with morphogenetic fields? Yes, it is a complicated topic. <laughs> I'll try to do it justice. Well, 
a lot of people don't know that this is an option. So I think it's, it can be really good to know. First of all, I was lucky that in my spiritual training, we started out with discernment in this regard. Um, the term used was only for the highest good. Now those who are only those who are for the highest good are who we work with. Um, the reasons for this are that um, there's all types of spirits um, who have a right to exist and have their own MOs and ways, you know, things that they want and need and ways they are in the world. And uh, it has to do with what kind of relationship we want and what's, you know, what our boundaries are and what results we're kind of looking for. So one thing that can happen, though, especially with deity figures, I think it's especially important with deity figures or figures that have a, a history of human relationship is the understanding that they have an essence, like we have an essence, like we may call our true self or maybe our most authentic self. And then there's a lot that can go into what we may call their broader field. So the, so for example, with the God Odin, God Odin has an essence and he actually maybe have a very, has a very old essence in the Voluspa poem again, he is mentioned as one of the forces that's present at the creation of the world. And there's that aspect of him. And then there's the Marvel or whatever the <laughs> franchise's movie aspect of him, right? And then all the treatments in between of who he is and what we think our relationship with is and who we think of him as a person. And what happens then is that there is also a field associated with him, a memory of all these ways, all of the ways in which he's been perceived and all the ways he's been interacted with. And if I just call on Odin, what I will probably get uh, is a mix of that essence of Odin as well as the field of Odin. And personally, I'm not that interested in the field of Odin. <laughs> uh, no offense to Odin. Odin's field. Um, <laughs> but for me, you know, working with their essence, working with their most authentic self, we use the term compassionate because that means the aspect of them that wants to be helpful, that wants to help humanity, uh, which we tend to need. Mm -hmm. um, wise, the most knowledgeable and wise aspect of them. We can kind of call it, we can call on that aspect because that aspect of them, first of all, will be the most helpful in my experience, it depends on, I guess, what you're asking for help with, right. um, <laughs> uh, will be helpful. Will, they won't infringe upon your free will or boundaries. Um, and they'll be healthy to interact with. Um, so uh, you're not going to be indebted to them, um, for example. There can be reciprocity, but you're not going to be indebted to them. They're not going to be negative. They're not going to be, you know, they're, they're going to su be supportive and resourcing. And I really, that's the kind of relationship I really, I would really like. Um, I really want in a relationship with spirits. And then you can get any, any range in between. Um, with Odin too, there's a, um, there can be, or with the Norse beings maybe in general, there are some practices that do involve, um, some people do uh, choose to surrender their will to the, the deity, uh, the being. And, and so, um, I don't want that element to be present in my personal interactions with them either, or that expectation or anything like that. So that's an example of something that can be in the field 
Um, so if I call on Odin and I'm not specific enough, and he starts to be like, well, become my <laughs> thrall, then I'm going to be like, oh, not so much. And <laughs> right. let's, let's, let's redo no, this. And, yeah, exactly. right, no thanks, but no thanks. Um, that, and not saying that that can't be a valid path for people and they can't learn from that or that's not a choice, but that's not the personal, personally, the relationship I want. So, um, so in that case, I would reset. And, and call him only, again, only the most wise and compassionate. I actually used to say only the most compassionate, but then I was actually was talking to Loki, actually, who in his most wise and compassionate form is really awesome um, <laughs> and funny. But what he said was like, you might want to say wise as well. Otherwise you might get the dumb compassionate <laughs> versions of him. <laughs> which I have to say has hadn't been a problem up to that point, but I was okay. You also don't um, want to not take Loki's <laughs> advice because he was just telling you. Exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. <point> taken. <laughs> yeah. And that does add, add an aspect to it. So it's kind of like, you know, with humans, you know, what do you want in a relationship with other humans? What are your requirements for that? What's healthy to you? What's nourishing and resourcing to you and what, what's not? And um, we can apply those parameters also to the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And that's one way we can do it. We can be discerning with them. Um, it's really important in healing work, in my experience, that discernment, because we want you know everything to be you know, clean and clear and not to have any other elements present. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also healthier for the individual. So sometimes um, when we work with spirits who are not only most wise and compassionate, not only for the highest good, there can be a toll. There's kind of like a price often that's paid because there's usually some kind of energy exchange or contract of some kind. And um, that often down the road, at least, would lead to uh, physical, potential physical uh, and maybe even mental illness in extreme mm-hmm. cases. Um, and it can also actually impact our descendants too. A lot of what I do for work ends up being somewhat karmic cleanup um, mm. where when it was common for kind of agreements to be made with spirits um, of different types, you know, that those agreements have um, there, there's effects, you know, mm-hmm. at some point, and there's, there's usually, you know, yeah, consequences down the road. So uh, I try to, you know, stay free of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. So interesting. You mentioned it. I was just in, in a text thread with friends today. And I, and I said, it's so unsettling to live in the age of consequences. <laughs> and they were like, whoa, that is when we're living. It's like, I know. Right. And so interesting how that shows up even ancestrally. It makes a lot of sense to me. Those of us who feel that we're, um, you know, working epigenetically, even we're healing, intergenerational trauma, but on multiple levels, it's like, it makes a lot of sense to me that, yep, people may have made all kinds of bargains and, you know, like, um, foxhole prayers, you know, just like help me out and they don't end. They are binding. Yeah. That's so interesting. And so people could read about Rupert Sheldrake's work around morphogenetic fields, but essentially his research is about, um, sort of, trying to validate, verify, and investigate what is that, that field of Odin, let's say. He's not using that same language. He's talking about, you know, other situations. But, um, but it's interesting because there's like also some positive aspects in terms of the field in some ways. Like, so for instance, there's, if there's a field around Sather, and then those of us who are learning a decade after others have kind of created this good field, and are trying to do it in a um, 
respectful way, a discerning way, then those of us who are coming in a little later, we learn a lot quicker because that field makes those connections um, more explicit, more quickly. And so um, there's a lot of, you know, fascinating uh, research that, that is going into this. So when we're talking about the field, it's like, it's not just some kind of new age term. At least that's my understanding of what Sheldrake is pointing at. It seems like you've incorporated that into your work too. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's a concept that's used a lot in mediumship that I learned from Betsy Bergstrom as well. And what you said, I completely agree with. I was surprised that Sather was potent. I was frankly, I had no association with anything European culturally based to, to have potency in my, I don't know. It was just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the truth, the reality right. of things, but it was <laughs> right. my expectation, at least going, and that was totally not the case. And the question is, why? Right. And I do think, I think it has to do with the field. It is a field we're tapping into. And then what we learn with mediumship practice is how to be selective about the fields. And anyone can do this. And what you just have to do is be specific in your language. What are you invoking specifically? What are your boundaries specifically? What's invited? What's not invited? Uh, mm -hmm. Right. And that invokes fields that you know which is i sometimes think of it as um in a sense that i'm i'm programming the ethers in a way uh, <laughs> what you know what's around me like what am i calling in and, and what's the what's the etheric environment going to be and we can influence that by what fields we invoke mm. and just invite yeah. i'm wondering now how do you find your training in neurobiology helpful or unhelpful in your, say, their work, your spiritual practice? Because I'm hearing a lot of connections with, you know, I guess when you're a hammer, everything's a nail, but I'm always like, oh, attachment or, you know, trauma or whatever. It's like hard not to hear that way. How, how much neurobiology is, is um, this work being filtered through <laughs> when you're <laughs> doing your work? <laughs> I don't actually think of it about it all that much these days. I actually would be curious to go back and look at what current research is doing with the perspective I have now and doing kind of a survey and overview of things um, from my current perspective. Uh, I think there's overlap in what I do uh, because when I think we talk about perception, of course, and even intuitive perception, the clear senses, I think there's an aspect of neurobiology to that. The brain is a part of, the, of, of, of course, our perception and our sense, uh, our senses. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't really go much further than that these days, mm -hmm. um, honestly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're like, you all do your thing. I've moved on. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was interesting, um, well, yeah, it's a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I find that I kind of need the, the right sources and resources for it. And, and this I could say is true for anything that I look into these days, but I need it to speak to me in order to be able to spend time or want to spend time doing it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I am completely open to there being <laughs> uh, bridge uh, people who are writing about these things. And uh, I'm definitely interested in general, but I haven't been finding that. I've been kind of been going in other directions. And my a lot of my research 
energy was going into the Norse material for a long time. And now I'm looking into some other things. And so <laughs> it's a little bit about energy allocation. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. So as we're uh, moving to close our time together, um, I wonder if there's a particular deity that you might call on to help you cope with things like grief or rage, or I'll state that another way. How might you work with primal emotions like that in your spiritual practice? Yeah. So <clears throat> there's a few ways I can think of answering that. Um, I think overall what I do, what I do spiritually supports me in all the ways that I need in being a human. So what I have found in doing spiritual work and practice is that I feel really well resourced and supported uh, with anything that's going on in my life. And I have been broken down and rebuilt <laughs> a few times and I know that I can be broken down mm. and that I can rebuild. So when, for example, grief, comes and ravages my reality um i i know that i can surrender to it mm. and that i'll be okay mm. um and that i'm held by my ancestors and i'm held by the compassionate spirits i'm not alone in that mm. um, when i feel strong anger i I feel like for me with, so I feel like those are two kind of different domains a bit. Um, with grief, it's been a lot about surrender and allowing it to open me up, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of what it'll do if, if, I, if I let it. Um, <laughs> I maybe kicking and screaming for a <laughs> portion of it and wanting it to be done. But I'm also aware because I've been through major grief, I'm aware of the trajectory of it. Um, and so that's one domain. And uh, again, I feel like I can surrender more easily to it. I feel like being in grief is a spiritual experience in that way. Mm -hmm. If we, you know, you know, take that, you know, again, make spiritualize something that's not something separate from our day-to-day -day life and lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then with anger, I feel like it's been, I'm also more supported. I can trust my anger more, I think too, because um, I have felt like a sacred rage i've felt what feels like really clean authentic rage and it felt different to me than what i would get and consider not so clean right. <laughs> rage which is how that can go a little bit you know um so i've also had that experience i actually think of it talked about deities i actually thought of it as a durga moment to be honest. Right. <laughs> Because I had a Durga moment where I it was at my wits end and i had this upflaring of this energy and i was like oh this is this is a sacred boundary setting. This is mm -hmm. boundary setting that's happening in a different way than I've been used to. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what stood out to me about it again was that it just felt really clean. Like I didn't feel like I was hurting the person <laughs> involved, but I was just like, no. And there was such an energy behind it that it was mm -hmm. just like, that's it. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Um, and I would say then what it, that, inspires me uh, to do is just con to continue to chip away, you know, at my own you know, healing process, at my own spiritual development, um, because uh, so that I can be more on those lanes, um, you know, with anger, I can be more in that lane and be responsible with what I'm doing with it. 
you know, mm. uh, not in a way that's, you know, trying to censor myself or control myself. But again, I feel like now when I feel angry, um, I have the tools I need, I feel, to do good things with it mm. and make it useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, you know, for me, the connection with my well ancestors uh, is a huge part in that feeling held by then, any of the compassionate spirits, really. Um, but of course, with grief, I think the um, sacred mother energies can be really great with that, as well as oceanic deities in the north there's Ron um, who's a goddess of the ocean and the ocean has a tremendous capacity to hold us or the earth has a tremendous capacity to hold things it's kind of like you need bigger capacity like who can what could hold what you're experiencing um, and help you hold that um, and in the moment I may not be aware of them or but I may just be like you know someone help me you know? <laughs> 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 <'Cause> I, <laughs> uh-huh. and I know because of everything that I've done up to this point um, that that's there <laughs> even if I'm not as aware of it in the moment because when we're in the throes of things we're just not going to be you know I'm not going to be oh you know I don't know <laughs> um, our, our ability to you know tune in that way often is is less because our energy is going into to where it's needed in that moment, which mm-hmm. is whatever's happening. So mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is also useful, though. What a useful model, and also reassuring that like anybody listening to this show is already at least in part doing some of what would be needed. It's like keeping spirit at the center of your life. We're just remembering that it's like an option as you stay in reciprocity with these compassionate forces. They're, they're way more likely to be there for you and available to you, or at least you'll, you'll, you're way more likely to recognize them when you're like someone help, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Maris, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really love your work and I'll be excited to put um, links to you and your upcoming offerings in the show notes. Thank you so much for sharing today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay, see, for real, she's warm. She's brilliant. She has fascinating stories and research and delivers it in such an accessible and compassionate way. I highly recommend you take any of Marissa's courses when they come available. And lucky for you, it's coming up. So you can find this episode's show notes with links to the resources and writers and websites mentioned by Maris. Uh, you can find the show notes at numinouspodcast.com and her excellent course called Gather at the Well, Norse Ritual Animism starts January 6th. So head to NuminousPodcast.com for links. Domo arigato to my two dozen listeners in Japan. You know what? You are not all located in Tokyo, as one might assume. You're actually all over the country. So my listener shout out is going to folks in Japan. You should definitely have a meetup over Zoom. I bet you get like 15 to 20 people or something show up. I I'm guessing a lot of you are teaching English over there, Uh, but if not, if you are actually a bona fide native Japanese speaker, you should post about listening to this episode on Instagram and tag me because I would have a follow-up question for you. Um, 
are you a rose lover? Because, you know, there are a lot of, uh, like me, hardcore David Austin English rose fans in Japan who I follow on Instagram. So I would be curious if you and I are in some very small, unique Venn diagram of lovers of David Austin roses uh, and intuition development and like collapse psychology. <laughs> like, I, is that, I think that's my crowd. I, are we each other's people? Like, should we, I, f- I feel like we should do something sometime. Anyway, konnichiwa Japan. I super appreciate you spending time with me. So friends, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this holiday season, I am once again doing my 12 Days of Yuletide Folk Celebration, formerly known as the Yuletide Stocking Stuffer. So it's uh, 12 daily micro-rituals and mini-meditations that you can easily fit into your busy day, um, even like do it as a family. So the first episodes actually have already been released. They're ready for listening just to help you get oriented. So you actually get more than like the 12 days. There's like four other small episodes that just kind of like get you started. Um, And then this weekend, Saturday, December 18th, under the full moon, I'm leading some ritual and trance work that will be all about filling your cup with soothing goodness so you can experience a bit of rest and renewal. On the 19th, I'm demonstrating how to make a fancy garland and beautiful wire-framed wreath. And on the evening of December 20th, I'm leading a cozy candlelit somatic practice to help de-stress and downshift the nervous system. Then, from solstice on December 21st to New Year's Day, you'll receive a daily private podcast full of folk customs and suggestions for self-directed rituals. And I guess I would say the people who really love this program tend to be um, like folks estranged from family, either by choice or circumstance. They really enjoy this. Um, Folks feeling kind of lonely or wanting some consistent contact nutrition for a couple of weeks. Uh, Folks who hate capitalist Christmas and want to celebrate something like more meaningful and craft their own traditions. And people with small kids who are trying to help instill some core values, you know, around like compassion and nurturance and reverence for ancestors or lineage or stewardship, like earth stewardship or um, kind of an animist approach. Um, Maybe even frugality or like experience-based celebrations instead of gift-focused traditions um, or co-constructed meaning through ritual practice, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, everything is included in the price of membership and you're welcome to just sign up for one month and then cancel. I get it. It's fine. You you can't just sign up for one workshop or course. No, you, you have to join the network, which is basically a very friendly events calendar calendar. Or it's like a gym membership, but it's like the YMCA gym, not like Soul Cycle or I don't know if that's a gym or like some, you know, it's not like some aspirational lifestyle brand yoga gym. It's the Y, okay? It's not Clubhouse. It's the equivalent of the Y, circa like 1998, when you took that flamenco dance class that time with the first openly gay man in his 50s you'd ever met. He had braces. He said over and over, pick the apple, bite the apple, throw the apple down. And he said he loved that lipstick color on you. 
And since you just recently started wearing lipstick, you like immediately went back to Eaton's department store makeup counter and bought three more of the same shade of lipstick because it seemed quite sophisticated to you to be complimented by your gay flamenco dance teacher because, you know, you were a 23-year-old parentified child desperate for whatever tiny token of adult care you could get. So you soaked up that shit like a cactus in summer. And you know, he was right. That type of brick red shade looks amazing with your skin tone, just like your color me beautiful swatch indicated it would. You're a spring. You need warm reds, just like you need some rest and relaxation, but also some good company this winter. So I hope I'll see you in the Numinous Network, my friend. Let's cozy up for some Yuletide festivities. It'll be like the History Channel meets HGTV meets that very unique Venn diagram I mentioned earlier. If that's your jam, come find me. You'll find all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.